This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Lale Arikogli, and this is Women Who Travel. Do you turn to movies and television to transport you to new places when you aren't traveling? Well, then today we have a treat. Film and TV director Leslie Linker Glatter has spent the past three decades not just bringing some of the most successful TV series to our screens, but creating the iconic worlds they are known for. Shows like Twin Peaks, Homeland, Mad Men, and many, many more. And later this month, her newest project comes out on HBO Max. Love and Death, a drama set in Texas, Leslie's home state. It's the true story of housewife and accused axe murderer, Candy Montgomery. Leslie worked on the show with writer David E. Kelly. Thank you so much for joining and for making this work because I feel like you have a very hectic schedule at the moment with Love and Death about to hit our screens in a few weeks. Um, So congratulations on that. Thank you. I'm so excited that it's about to go into the world and nervous and anxious and all of those good things that go with having something, you know, actually out there. You've worked on a ream of successful shows, I think, both for HBO and other networks over the last few decades. How do you know a good show to pick? How do you know a compelling story? For me, I read something and if I connect to it, I start to see it. I can start to imagine it visually. It's all about story. Story is everything. And deep, complicated, layered characters. There are certain themes that I'm always pulled to. I love stories that things are not what they appear to be. And you have to look deeper and dig deeper to see what's really going on. Love and Death had that in spades. Uh, it On the surface, it's a very beautiful and bucolic world. And underneath, it's much darker. And that juxtaposition always interests me, as well as the idea of people being put in extraordinary circumstances where they're forced to deal with who they really are. And this takes place in a small town in Texas. I happen to be born in Texas, grew up in New York City and in Dallas, Texas. And this is a story that took place in 1978 in Wiley, Texas, which is right outside of Dallas. And 
we shot it in not in that town because that town has grown so much since this story was set that we were based in Austin. So it was amazing to actually shoot a Texas story in Texas. I want to get a little bit into what it takes to build a world, but before I ask how you do that, sure it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you said you're from Texas, you know Texas, and you got to have the joy of making it in Texas. But did you feel a pressure to stay true to the state that you're from? Did it feel like the stakes were higher? I think the stakes are always really high, certainly when you're telling a true story, because you want to have incredible empathy for the fact that these are real, real humans that you're telling a story about. And, you know, Texas is the land of wide open spaces and big dreams and big possibilities. And I wanted to show the beauty of that and the small town and also that things were not what they appear to be. The original stories, which were from Texas Monthly, two Texas Monthly stories and a nonfiction book called Evidence of Love. And as I was reading, I was like, I, I can't believe this is true. I mean, even, you know, this is to me a story about this is a group of families and I think it addresses women of that time, also the men, but primarily the women who married young. These characters are all like 28 years old. They did everything right. They had the kids, the women stayed home, they made the meals, they went to church, they did it all right. Why is there a hole inside their hearts and souls that is a mile wide, that just can't be filled? Are you sure this is really about Alan Gore and not about you wanting to be reckless? Maybe a little both. Oh, men, they get to go to their jobs and live in their careers, and we just stay home, and God, that's supposed to be enough. Look at our kids right now on that jungle gym. It is human nature to take risks, to go for something with a little thrill at the risk of falling. And, you know, this wasn't a time where you go to your therapist and talk it out and try to figure out what's going on. I worked with the extraordinary David E. Kelly, who wrote Big Little Lies and The Undoing and countless other amazing shows. And all these years of being a storyteller, which I absolutely love doing, I had never worked with David. We can't believe it. Between the two of us, we probably have 60 years of storytelling history, and we have never worked together. Our lead character, played by Lizzie Olson, Candy Montgomery, picks a really bad choice. 
to fill that empty void in her. But it was that kind of, it's an American tragedy to me, this story. And that's what I wanted to explore. That kind of hole in the psyche of so many men and women of that time without the tools to move past it in a healthier way. It is a true crime story, but it's not just that. It is kind of the dark side of the American dream. And of course, we have this unbelievable cast, uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons and Lily Rabe and Patrick Fugit and Kristen Ritter. It's like it was a dream cast and they inhabited those characters so completely. Sorry, I got sucked in, sucked into you describing the, the cast then. I feel like before I even knew we were going to be chatting, I'd seen the trailer and was it was just like one after the next, like someone popped up on the screen and I was just like, okay, I'm sold. As soon as I saw Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons, I was like, I'm done. They are both truly extraordinary. I mean, Lizzie, she, they both just go incredibly deep into who their characters are and make it so accessible to us as an audience. How do you go about creating this world and how do you find locations? I mean, obviously you have a whole team of location scouts, but you know, how do you create it? And what's the kernel of a picture in your head that it starts from? When I'm building a team, I want the best people I can possibly have around me to start to create this world. And I start visualizing immediately. Like right when I read the stories, I started to see it. You know, I pull from painting and photography and other films, and I try to be inspired by everything around. And then I start adding in the amazing team. And this is separate from the cast. This is the crew, the heads of department. Suzuki Ingerslev, who, what, yes, that is her real name. But again, you're talking to someone named Leslie Linka Gladder, and that is my real name. So Suzuki, who is a German woman, was the production designer, and she's an incredible designer. So we got together, as well as Audrey Fisher, who was our costume designer, and we started talking about the look and feel of the show with our location manager, Ryan Smith. And so we knew we had to find this world. A lot of 1978 does not exist anymore. And if it does, it's older and falling apart. And you know, we were constantly looking for things that were intact, but oftentimes, again, we had a lot of work to do, like finding those motels. The first motel, it was three different locations because that motel, which looked like the real one they went to, the Continental, it was in the process of getting renovated to become like a hip apartment living complex. And then the Como, which is from that era, was in horrible shape. I don't even remember how many gallons of paint were needed to repaint the whole thing. So it looked new in 1978 and not falling apart. There's this beautiful, picturesque, small 
you know, white clapper church. But in the story, the congregation comes together and they build a new church, but new is 1978, not new 2023. And so we had to find a new 1978 church and then put it in across from our charming clapper church. Now that never existed in real life. In the beginning, there are many things that are kind of funny, but it was based on circumstance, not ever making fun of the characters like Candy and Alan. They talk about having an affair for months. It is the most unsexy beginning of any affair. There's nothing spontaneous about this. They're talking about it all the time. But that was the truth. I would never have made that up. I would never be able to forgive myself if Betty ever found out. That would be devastating to her. I feel the same. We would have to be so careful that no one would ever know, except us. That's right. I've been thinking a lot about what you said about just wanting to go to bed, not getting too emotionally involved and so forth. That would be very important to me. Me too, Al. I just want to enjoy myself. Without hurting myself or anyone else. Well, I think we should think about it some more. Think about the hazards and decide whether or not we're willing to take the risk. Fine. Yeah, I think we should. So that's the plan then? Think about it some more? That is the real story. They did get together over lunch, over lasagna, her famous lasagna, and made on butcher paper a do's and don't list of what they had to be careful of to not harm their families. And they were very rigorous about it. That is totally from the true story. In the second episode, Betty and Alan go to Methodist marriage encounter, which is an actually amazing thing. If you have never gone to therapy, if that's not an option, this is kind of like couples therapy under the guise of the church. And it really brings people back together. In real life, it was set in a place called Dunphy's, I think it was Dunphy's Royal Inn. So it's been torn down. It was on North Central Expressway in Dallas. But it was a hotel that looked like a medieval castle. And I said it there. That's where it was really set. But I would never have done that if that wasn't true. Because I, did, I wouldn't want to look like it was making fun of that process at all because I actually took it very seriously. After the break, what it took to bring to life homelands, many international locations. If you're enjoying this episode of Women Who Travel, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from you. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned 
just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The espionage thriller Homeland ran for eight seasons. Starring Claire Danes, Damian Lewis and Mandy Patinkin. It was known as much for its locations as its cast, with the plotline shot everywhere from North Carolina and Puerto Rico to Berlin and Cape Town. One of the fun things is, maybe fun is not the right word, but one of the most exciting things is creating the world. Like on Homeland, every year we move to a new country and reset the series. So to me, creating the world that your characters are going to live in and interact in is so essential. And I want everything to be cinematic and feel like, you know, we're telling visual stories and you have to feel the world you're in. Tell me about Cape Town. Fell in love with Cape Town. One of the most beautiful cities on the planet. Complicated city, of course, in terms of the politics there, but the most amazing crew base, loved our South African crew. And again, it was the same heads of department. There were like 15 of us who traveled around the world together. And we knew the story we were telling. You know, every year on Homeland, myself, Claire Danes, Mandy Patinkin, and Alex Ganza, who created the show, and Howard Gordon, and the writers would all go to DC and meet with 
the heads of the CIA, NSA, DNI, State Department, all of the people surrounding intelligence, and basically ask the question, what are your biggest fears for America and the world? What keeps you up at night? And that's where the season would come from. So when we went to Cape Town, we were actually, I know it sounds insane, we were shooting Cape Town for Islamabad, Pakistan. And I know it sounds crazy, but it has been done many times. There are certain areas of Cape Town that look a lot like Islamabad. So that's where we shot that season. We were going to go to India, but it was rainy season and we could not go. So the minute we dropped into Cape Town, we started to put our team together. We got in the scout van. I spent so many hours in a van looking for locations. And that's what we did for several weeks of like going around. How can we put this world together of the story we're telling? How is this going to work? What is it going to look like? And of course, there were only certain areas that look like Pakistan. So, you know, you're going to look this way, and it's going to be Pakistan. But if you turn that way, it's Africa. So it was a fascinating process of like learning how to see and create what we needed to see to tell that particular story. Is the only way you're seeing these places through the scouting van or are you getting to explore South Africa or Cape Town as Cape Town rather than as Islamabad? I think you're getting some of both. Like the big focus in the beginning is finding how we're going to tell our story here. I'm very lucky in that I am an editor at Cordinas Traveller, so I get to do some incredible work travel. And every time I come back from an assignment, I come back having fallen in love with the place, fallen in love with the people who have shown me it, and feeling a certain level of grief for the fact that it's over. And I'm usually only there for like a week. What's the transition like back to America after you've had one of these extraordinary stints? I feel the same way with leaving. I mean, after nine months in a country where you've really made close friends and people that you want to keep in your life forever, it's hard. I always loved travel. I love the adventure of it. I love the newness. I like being put in situations that I kind of had to figure out how to move. And everything was, I, I just, I felt like it was always being filled up. There was so much input, so much that I had never seen or experienced. And I loved it. I loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I spent almost 11 years overseas, you know, and in a certain way, the biggest risk for me was coming back to America and finding that kind of excitement in the country I grew up in, which I definitely have. But when I was young and, you know, traveling so much in that way, now I do it in a different way. Now I go and spend nine months in Cape Town, South Africa on homeland or that, you know, Berlin or Austin, Texas. And it is, I feel like we're all kind of in the traveling circus in film, you know, and there's something amazing about that. I've worked with a lot of the same people over and over. And then there are people that are not available when you, you know, when you're starting up and then someone else comes into your world and life and that's exciting. And there's this feeling of like, okay, it's not a goodbye, but I'll see you down the road. 
I love that description of traveling circus and, you know, not many people get to travel that way. Coming up, I fangirl a little bit to Leslie over Twin Peaks and she tells me about how a visit to Tokyo led her on the path to becoming the award-winning director she is today. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. You worked on a show that was very formative for me in my college years and I think a lot of people probably say this to you but it was Twin Peaks oh wow really yes I really tired out my Twin Peaks DVD when I was in college (sighs) I just think it is the most beautiful and weird and strange and cool TV show that's ever been made and you know, it's so atmospheric and it is so visual. I mean, it's so David Lynch. But I just want to know, how. what was your experience working on it and creating the world of Twin Peaks, which is kind of one of the weirdest worlds there is in television? Well, first of all, I love that you love that show. Working with David Lynch, you know, I feel like I was so fortunate to see brilliant directors working when I was still a young director and see what their process was. Because what you learn is you have to find your own process. But to be around people who are so committed to telling the story well was inspiring to me. And in fact, in the beginning, so I directed for Twin Peaks. And I think it was the same amount that David Lynch directed. I can tell you when I saw that pilot, I was blown away and I knew that somehow I had to work on that show. It was so unique. It was so visionary. It was characters that you, they were, I I don't want to call them odd because they weren't odd. They were incredibly human, but they were unique. Let's put it that way. And again, looking at a small town. I fell in love with the town. I fell in love with the characters. So when I was just getting to know David, I had been hired to direct an episode. They were all numbers. I think I directed episode five in the first season, which was about the Icelanders coming to town and Agent Cooper couldn't fall asleep. I was on the set with David a lot. I wanted to just kind of soak in the environment. And 
I asked him about a scene that was in actually the first episode. This was a real learning moment for me. And it was a scene where Kyle McLaughlin and Michael Onkeen are in a bank vault and there is a moose head sitting in the table. No one ever talks about the moose head at all. They open a safety deposit box, they have a whole scene and there's a moose head sitting there. And it's amazing. So when I get to know David, I ask him, David, how did you get the idea to put the moose head on the table? And he looked at me and he said, it was there. And I'm like, well, what do you mean it was there? He said the set decorator was going to hang the moose head on the wall, but he saw it lying on the table and he said, leave the moose head. And something like cracked open for me. Yes, know what you want, plan everything, but be sure you're open to the moose head on the table. Be sure you're open to life and you don't miss the opportunity that life can bring you. And it was such a profound thing to learn as a new director. God, that's you can just sort of apply that motto to everything. I think I try to apply it every single day, but it was a great directing lesson of, yes, do your homework, but don't be so closed that you don't see what's in front of you. It would seem that Leslie made the most of every opportunity and chance encounter. A good rule of thumb for any travel experience. Before I was a director, I was a modern dancer and a choreographer, and I lived 10 years overseas. So I spent a combo of like five to almost six years in Paris and London. And then I got a grant to teach, choreograph, and perform throughout the Far East. So I was actually based in Tokyo and would go and spend three months at the Peking Opera School and then three months at the Balinese Dance Academy. And it was life-changing. It changed my life completely, living in Japan. And when I first got there, I thought I had been dropped on another planet. There was nothing that felt familiar to me. And yet I was totally excited and intrigued by it, but it did really feel it was the most, in a certain way, foreign place I had been. Because at that point, there was nothing in English. You know, there were no street signs in English. There was nothing. You really felt like, oh my God, I am a stranger in a strange land. And I had to really get my bearings there to figure out how to move through it. And it is the place that changed my life and set me on a completely different path. I loved the aesthetic, the Japanese aesthetic. I was sent there. I was working with extraordinary Japanese artists. I studied Japanese classical dance and taught modern dance. I was choreographing, I was performing, I was working with cutting edge dancers and theater directors. And it opened my mind completely. And you really feel what is essentially and quintessentially human and what is all those things that are so different culturally that make us all exciting. So it was both about the similarity and differences simultaneously. I was in Shibuya and I wanted a cup of coffee. And there were two coffee shops right in front of me, one on the right, one on the left. Arbitrarily, I picked the one on the right. And it was packed. There was one seat left with an older Japanese man. I was like 25, he was like 75, and he waved me over. 
little unusual. I sat down with him. He turned out to be one of the truly profound people that I've ever met. And he spoke 12 languages, perfect King's English. He had been the top foreign war correspondent. So he had traveled all over the world and had been a Buddhist monk and was head of cultural affairs for the Asahi Shimbun, the largest newspaper in Japan, which is where cultural affairs you know, actually happens in Japan. And this is a guy I'm meeting by chance in a coffee shop. And eventually he and his wife kind of became my surrogate Japanese parents. And eventually he told me a series of stories that all happened on Christmas Eve. Again, he was Buddhist, so it was not a religious thing, all during different wars and about human connection. And that's what I made my first film about. I knew when he told me those stories that I had to pass it on and I knew it wasn't dance. So had I walked in the coffee shop on the left, I would never have directed. So Japan changed my life because that was my first film. What was your first film called? Tales of Meeting and Parting. Okay. And it was a 30-minute short narrative fiction film that I made through the directing workshop for women at AFI. And it was nominated for an Academy Award for short film. And I hadn't met anyone in the film business. I didn't know anyone. I was definitely not a Nepo baby. And that opened the door. And, you know, knock on wood, I've been working ever since. It's so great to talk to you. And it makes me want to get on a plane and go to some extraordinary place and open myself to learning more about the world and life. Oh my God. Well, all I can say is you have to, you, you have to keep doing it. Love and Death will be streamed on HBO Max on April 27th. Next week, we honor Earth Day by chatting with South African freediver Sandile Nlovu about exploring the depths of our oceans, going face-to-face with a shark, and we discover how oyster reefs are being regrown in a slightly surprising location, New York City. Thanks for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram, at Lale Hanna, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram, at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton-Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. 
Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.